we finally considered the sixth and ninth commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. We've seen that these two commandments require each man to regulate the great creative power in accordance with reason and faith, and they prevent him, prohibit him from sinning against chastity in thought, word, or deed. We've seen that the power to bring forth new life is a holy power which God expects us to shield carefully with modest and pure behavior, and most especially by means of prayer, most notably the three Hail Marys and the daily rosary. We've seen this power as God's special gift, which is to be used by married couples and married couples alone. We've seen that for the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful, simply because the unmarried do not have the right to those kinds of passions or pleasures. They don't have the right to just deliberately stir that up by thought, word, or deed. Why? Because those passions and pleasures are reserved strictly for the married. We've seen that the kisses that are allowed to unmarried people are the little peck on the cheek kind of thing. There's no passion allowed. Once we understand that, it's e easy to see what all is forbidden. Today, let's consider a young man or woman who isn't yet sure about his vocation in life. Do I have a vocation to the priesthood? Obviously, we're not referring to the young women there. Do I have a vocation to the priesthood? Do I have a vocation to the religious life? Do I have a vocation to holy matrimony? Or am I supposed to live the single life out in the world? So this young man or woman hasn't answered those questions yet, even though, as St. Gregory points out, eternity hangs upon our vocation. Or as St. Alphonsus points out, it is evident that our eternal salvation depends principally upon our choice of our state in life. So let's imagine that instead of praying and asking God to make the answer to this critical question clear, as clear as possible, he doesn't really give it much thought, and he meets someone and decides to date her, and they start passionately kissing and so forth. Now, whether he realizes it or not, he's already made a serious mistake. See, this young man or woman hasn't yet answered that most important question, the question of a lifetime, the question upon which eternity hangs, and yet he's kick-started his passions. What if he has a vocation to the priesthood or to the religious life? It's not a joke at all to say that you can literally kiss a vocation goodbye. That's not a joke. You can kiss a vocation by. You young people, you single people, you have to guard your hearts. The first thing you need to do is determine your state in life. St. John Bosco says that one-third of the young people have a vocation to priesthood or religious life. One-third. If you think or you suspect that you have a vocation to the priesthood or the religious life, in order to preserve that, there's one thing you must not do, and that's to date anyone. There are several things that you must do in order to preserve that vocation. We'll cover this in greater detail at a later date, but following the teaching of those great saints and doctors of the church, St. Ambrose, 
St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Bernard, St. John Chrysostom, St. Thomas Aquinas, and St. Alphonsus, if you think you have a vocation, generally speaking, you must keep this a secret. A secret from everyone except from a reliable confessor or spiritual director. This is a special call from God. He only makes it to certain privileged souls that you must keep it a secret, even from your parents. That sounds shocking, but parents, this is one place where your authority certainly does not extend. I'm not making this up. This is a salvation issue. It's serious. If you have a vocation, keep it a secret. Tell it to a good confessor or a spiritual director and let them guide you in the process. That's the first thing. The second place, you must pray. A vocation is something supernatural. In order to preserve it, you must pray. If you mess up and wind up in a state of life to which God has not called you, it will be much harder for you to lead a good life. That's the way it works. In the plans of divine providence, he has a certain path each of us need to follow as Catholics to get to heaven. And if we go off that path, we do it to our own peril, even in another state of life. It's going to be harder. Eternity hangs upon your vocation. So preserve your vocation. You have to pray. Don't blab. Keep it a secret. And don't date. You can easily kiss a vocation goodbye. Okay, what about the case when he's sure he has a vocation to holy matrimony? But then the same thing happens. As soon as he begins to date right away, they start passionately kissing and so forth. What has this couple just done? Instead of being careful to actually get to know each other, Instead of being as reasonable and as cautious as possible of each other, what have they done? They've just cranked their passions right up to ultimate flamethrower. This is a big mistake. A big, big mistake. See, the very degree that those passions are inflamed, which of course depends on how often this sort of behavior goes on and what all happens, to that very degree, they will each suffer increasingly serious consequences, which St. Thomas explains in some detail. In order to understand St. Thomas's point here, we need to quickly review some of the things we know already about our imagination and our intellect. Real quick, think about two, the number two. Now, in our mind's eye, we might have a little squiggle, that number two, or you might have Roman numerals, or two apples, or two oranges, or two bananas, or two bears, or two babies, or whatever. Let's just step back from ourselves mentally for a moment and look at what we just did. We had a whole bunch of images running through our minds, at least after I listed them. Apples, oranges, Roman numerals, pairs of things, whatever. These pictures, which are changeable before our mind's eye, those are in our imagination. They're called images in our imagination. The picture of the apples, the picture of the pears, whatever. They're in our imagination. All those images, apples, oranges, watermelons, all these images that we have in our mind's eye are changeable. They have different shapes, colors, and so forth, right? What do they all have in common? Something unchangeable. Even though all those images were different, they were all twos. All those changeable things, whether we're talking about apples or watermelons or oranges, what have you, are two of something. But what it is to be two, what we might call two-ness, 
what it is to be two. Tunis doesn't change. You can picture apples, you can mutate them from Macintosh to green apples to delicious apples right in your mind, just like this red-green. You can make purple apples in your mind. That all changes. But Tunis doesn't change. Okay? The images are an imagination. That's the place for these changeable material representations of things. But Tunis doesn't change. Tunis doesn't have a shape or a color or size. We were looking at different examples of two, but Tunis never changes. That's an idea. That resides in our intellect. Ideas are in the intellect. The intellect is a place where ideas can be found. Ideas don't have any material qualities, okay? Tunis, that concept that we can see in these pairs of apples or oranges or whatever before our eyes, two fingers, Tunis never changes. The apples, they change. So images like apples or fingers or whatever, these are changeable material representations in our imagination. But Tunis, ideas like Tunis, these are unchangeable concepts, spiritual concepts in our intellect, okay? That's all our view. We've all heard that before. The images we just considered, like apples or oranges, those images we just drew up from our memory because we know what apples or oranges or pineapples look like. We already know what an apple and orange is already, so we can draw that image up from our memory. But how do those images first get into our imagination? How do they ultimately land in our mind? Through our senses, through our five senses, okay? Our knowledge of something in the outside world, like this apple, comes first flowing in through our senses, through our sense of touch, through our sense of taste, smell, sight, hearing. All those things come flowing in and then they're assembled into this material image in our imagination, okay? It comes from our senses and flows in and then it's present to us in our mind in an image. We can store that image in our memory and later draw on it, but first we got it from the outside world, okay? Our intellect, and here's the important point right here, our intellect, which is a spiritual part of the soul, the part of our soul by which we can do things like think and know and judge. What is this? Is this an apple or an orange? Or, you know, we can judge things. The things that we can think, know, judge, and understand, our intellect, the place of ideas relies on imagination to stay in contact with reality. So our imagination relies on the exterior world through the senses to stay in contact with reality. And our intellect, in order to understand, is in contact with our imagination. That's how it works. Okay, so what? That means the clearer the image we have of something, this exterior object in our imagination, the clearer we understand that apple by all the information coming in, the better grasp we can have of appleness. This is the whole idea of science. You're sitting here studying something, trying to get a better and better knowledge of it as you're tearing apart, which is a fancy kind of mechanicy. You're breaking something apart and looking at it. Or, you know, studying anatomy to know how all the parts fit together in something. What are you trying to do? You're getting better images so that you can better understand what it is, this thing that you're dealing with. Whether it's an apple and you're cutting it up and seeing how the seeds fit together, whatever, what it tastes like. Okay? So, our intellect relies directly on our imagination to stay in contact with reality. The more clear the image of this exterior object is portrayed in our imagination, the clearer we can understand it. The more confused or hazy the image, the less clear grasp we have on the exterior object. For example, take the example of a hose. We're walking across the lawn when we go home, we step on a hose. Big deal, we see it's a hose. This very event in the dark of night might be quite different. When we're walking in the daytime, we have a very clear image of what we're doing. At night, we're walking along, 
what kind of sensory information we have, just what's coming through the soles of our feet. And if we have shoes on, that's not particularly very high degree of resolution. So you're walking along, you step on something rounded and soft on the lawn. The image is very rough. You could easily go, I've stepped on a snake. It's very easy to do that kind of thing. At day, you wouldn't even think of it. You could see it's a garden hose. At night, because you have a rougher image. Again, we're making the point, if we have a poor image, we won't be as clear contact with reality. Our intellect won't be able to say what's going on here, okay? The clearer the image we have of an object, the clearer the understanding we can come to, the more confused or messed up the image, the more hazy our understanding. Okay, Father, but what does this have to do with passionate kissing? We're talking about garden hoses and apples and oranges. Okay, let's go back. We've been talking about a young couple with a vocation to holy matrimony that came right out the gate, passionately kissing and so forth, right from the beginning of their relationship. What does this do? It stirs up violent excitement in the passions. That's why it's called passionate kissing. Those are part of your sensory input, okay? What happens? In the young man's image that he has of the young lady, and vice versa, the image in his imagination of this young lady that he's trying to get know is totally coated. It's totally covered with these violent, passionate feelings, all this excitement. These raging passions distort the image. So that the image of the other person in the imagination is steamed over with passion, okay? What does that mean? Because the image is so steamy, his intellect, which is relying on his imagination to stay in contact with reality, to get to know this person, his intellect isn't getting a clear focus. It can't get a clear focus. His intellect is unable to because his passions have whacked his whole thought processes out of kilter. The more repeated, the more perverted, or the more depraved the passionate behavior, the more the passions will fog up the image, and so the more steamy this whole mental picture becomes, the more unreal it becomes, as it were. Okay? St. Thomas calls this very problem intellectual blindness. The clearer the image we have of some object, the clearer the understanding. The more hazy or confused the image we have, the more hazy or confused the understanding. Okay. Now think about what this means, this intellectual blindness for this young couple. It means that each one of these parties involved doesn't necessarily have a very clear picture of the other person. When he looks at her, thinks about her, she th looks at him or talks to him, what happens? Instead of being able to make a relatively calm, hopefully fairly balanced and reasonable judgment of this other person that he's thinking about marrying, or that she's thinking about marrying, they're not able to make that kind of thing. What have they done? The flames of passion have distorted that image that they have of this other person. The more excited they've allowed themselves to get, the more steamed over and fogged the glass becomes, so to speak, in the imagination, and so the more profound the blindness. They've blinded each other with their passions. By putting the passions out of order and not following the divine plan, they're causing themselves intellectual blindness. Okay? They've actually gummed up the ability to properly judge whether or not this is the right person to marry because they've steamed up their mind with illegitimate pleasures. And the more repeated, the more perverted, or more depraved those pleasures, the more those passions have steamed up and distorted that image, and so the more gummed up their judgment has become. 
And this is a judgment which will directly impact their happiness in this life and in the next. Intellectual blindness is a very serious problem. St. Thomas points out yet another very serious consequence, a problem known as inconstancy. What does that mean? It means that the young man or woman can't stick to decisions concerning the object of passion. That means the other person. He can't decisively command something to be done, even though he knows it's the right thing to do. He has a lot of trouble. For example, suppose it dawns on this guy one day, you know, this relationship just isn't working out. We ought to break up. He may very well decide to break up with the girl. He may even try to break up with her, but because he's such a slave to his passions, it's very likely that he might not be able to if he's let himself get too carried away. He may even take her down the aisle in spite of these misgivings. Obviously, this sort of problem also has a direct impact on the happiness of that couple in this life and the next. Now, St. Thomas lists eight problems. We've only looked at two. They're all serious. It doesn't take much to look out at the world and see how this impacts the lives and marriages of people that we know. It's more than enough just from what we've seen to see that once again, either we have to lead our passions or our passions are going to lead us. We need to guard our hearts. Let's close. You know, if I were the devil and I wanted to cause huge problems, problems that would make it very difficult for a young man or woman to discern their vocation in life, if I were the devil and I wanted to cause huge problems in marriage and contribute greatly to the breakup of marriages, if I were the devil and I wanted to make it very difficult for a young man or woman to even respond to a clearly heard call to the priesthood or the religious life. If I were the devil and I wanted to cause all that galaxy of social problems that flow directly and naturally from sins against the sixth and ninth commandments. If I were the devil and I wanted to do all those things, all I'd do is just convince young people that passionate kissing isn't really any big deal. But everybody does it. They really don't know what you're missing until you've tried it. If I were the devil, I'd just do something like that. And I could just stand back, let things develop naturally. It's a good thing I'm not the devil.